someone that you absolutely have to interview. You must talk to Dennis. And he was like, he's a ghostwriter. And I'm like, get out of here. I'm like, you know that people have that role and that responsibility, oh, yeah. that job, that career. But I've never met a ghostwriter Me before. either. Yeah. Yeah. That's the name. You're supposed to be a ghost. We're supposed to be clandestine in nature. So if you meet us, we're actually not doing our job. <laughs> so Dennis, first I'd like to tell people a little bit about who you are and what you do. And then um, we have about four different sections, areas we want to go over with about your career, um, advice for people who want to do what you do, mm -hmm. and the path that they should take. Yes. Okay. So um, what I found very interesting about your background is um, you're a former writer and producer for the group Boys to Men. Mm -hmm. Started off in the entertainment industry. And then I know you um, consider yourself, your path, a renaissance path where you um, have covered everything from the music industry, the capital markets, um, leading you directly to philanthropy. Mm -hmm. yes. 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 And so um, another thing about you, I know you've been seen on this um, this season of Cut in the ATL. Cut in the ah. ATL on WeTV. On WeTV. Now explain your role on that. Explain your role, because I know you weren't cutting hair. Yeah, no. <laughs> and I'm so glad you made that point. Yeah, was well, not cutting hair. Actually, one of the stars of the show, or the star of the show, Deidre Allen, uh, sort of this, who the main character is, I was working with her writing her book before they started recording for, the, for this season, episode two. And long story short, the producers of the show asked if they could start coming to the office and actually tape our consulting sessions and the editing sessions and the collaborative sessions as I was working on her, you know, her, script, her script and uh, working on the character development and just the entire story. And so that became a story in and of itself, and it got it included into the, the bigger show. So it sort of backed its way in. It was not planned, but ended up being on episode 9, and they did episode 10, and then, you know, it just sort of went forward. So Nice. Cool. And then, of course, we can't forget to mention Right Investment Associates, and that's where you are. That's your... Your company where you are the ghostwriter, correct? This is correct, yes, here in Atlanta. And uh, we ghostwrite for high-profile, successful authors all around the world. We, Our job is to essentially take their ideas or many times to give them better ideas such that their book is commercial in nature and has the appeal, the mass appeal they need for major releases at publishing houses. And i just like to mention that he has... Um, done some books that have become New York Times bestsellers. Oh, that's awesome. Yes, two, yes. two of them. Yeah. Yes. So, um, congratulations. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank Absolutely. You. So we're going to get started. So I'm, I'm fascinated by what you do. I have a lot of respect for what you do as mm -hmm. a writer. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that they can write, but everybody can't bring that to life into yes. a project or a book. Mm -hmm. So how did you even get started? You know, so it's interesting. The, the short path to that answer is I started off as a composer, as a producer, of course, in the music industry. I always wrote from you know a child on. I always knew content development was really my thing. And what's interesting is in the music industry, when you're assembling a song, you don't know it, but you're actually putting together skills that are much more valuable outside of writing a song. And so when you're putting together a three to four minute song, you have to get someone into the relationship, you have to get him out of the relationship. You know, he asks for forgiveness. You right. know, before the commercial, before the Geico commercial, whatever, you have to take them in and out. Right. But what you don't know is you're learning uh, the aspects needed to succinctly state uh, a, a longer story and really to only hit the high points of the story, filtering out everything that does not matter. And so starting up from that particular premise, uh, when I changed over from the music industry, 
I was there for a long time when I sort of went into the capital markets and went back to school and, and started to go into a different business frame, I noticed uh, when I started working on books that when I was writing songs, I was essentially writing a short book. That's what okay. I was doing. When I started writing books, I made the, the connection that now I'm writing a long song. And so the, I made the transition skill to skill, understanding that the books that were being sort of uh, the comments were coming back from publishing houses that they were, you know, they were like melodies, they were melodious, they, they had a certain rise and fall. But what they were saying was, it sounds basically like a long song. So I took the skill from songwriting and combined that what, with what I learned in, in the capital markets and just in business. And when I started to write books, really put together those, those, those particular skills and came up with something that was very unique. Um, that had never been done before, and so here I am today, a decade later, still writing books from a song perspective. And so when you transitioned out of the music business mm -hmm. and you began to become an author, mm -hmm. was this something that you could do full-time? Did you have to do something else to kind of supplement your income? Like, mm -hmm. tell us about financially about your journey. Yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting because I, I think first you have to back up and just talk about your thinking frame because whether you're writing books or whether you're selling widgets, whether you're going to be financial, financially successful has more to do with how you think even greater than the skill you, you have in your hand because a lot of average people are very wealthy because they think wealthy but they have average skills. And so when I started writing, uh, essentially I went directly towards big projects. I mean, I just, you know, I cut past I figured it's going to take just as much effort to fail as, as it is to win. Right. So I didn't spend time on trying to make $500 or $600 starting off. You know, I went for the $25,000, $50,000 projects, you know, and just kept from everybody that this is my first one. <laughs> so right. Right. second one. And um, so, yeah, there was a learning curve. And uh, when I first started my company, I, I did a lot of bidding on municipalities, projects, communication projects, writing projects. I did a lot of freelancing. I learned the bidding process. I learned, again, how to use language in a way that spoke more credibly to one that had a lot of experience, even though I did not have that experience at the time. And through that process, I was able to land uh, projects that, in my first year of my company, was able to make a sustainable living uh, without having to go through that first year of just uh, beans and beans. More beans. Struggling. <laughs> yeah, struggling. Right. So, so, yes, there were lean years, but not as lean as they, as they would have been had I expected them to be lean years and then did lean activities that, again, gave me lean years. So from a time perspective, how long do you think that transition period was for you? Before the company became fully sustainable, I would say maybe, maybe two to two and a half years before it really became you know, something where I did not have to do anything else but write books. Um, yeah, probably two and a half years. I, I think, you know, one thing that has to be mentioned about writing, because as you said, everyone believes they can write. And um, most people believe they could play in the NBA too. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it's like if I had the shot. Well, I mean, so, you know, writing is a very interesting, interesting thing because uh, while everyone can write, there are gradations to the quality therein. So, for one to write at a, at a level that a Simon & Schuster would hire you or a Random House or Wiley Books, that's an entirely different skill. And there's not really a curriculum. There's not a pathway. Uh, yes, you can get an MA in creative writing. That's not the pathway to ghostwriting. To become a ghostwriter, people hire you essentially to make them look smarter than they are. Right. You are to write their better self. So I sit with an author who has a PhD in economics, or an author who was a forensic psychiatrist who my, my last book was for. And these are very highly accomplished individuals. And so to be able to dig into what they know and then repeat it back to them better than they can say it is a skill that is writing, but it's actually psychology. It's actually, there are a lot of different nuances. And so to tell someone, hey, I can teach you to be a ghostwriter is not really an accurate term. You really have to have not only a writing skill, but a skill of observation, observing the nuances of life that other people ignore, such that when you articulate them, people say, that's it, I always knew it, but I didn't have the words to say it. And so it's more than just writing, right. you know, it's listening, it's observing, um, if that makes sense. And 
So did you have to make an initial investment in your company? You know how a lot of people, you hear them say, I needed 5000 I needed 25000 Yeah. How much skin in the game did you have when you started? Yeah, this is going to sound kind of rough, but I didn't, at the time when I started my company, there was no skin to put in the game. <laughs> I mean, I, if I, it was, I could give you some skin skin, but, you know, when I first started writing, it was pretty lean. I joined a freelance company. Uh, I think my fee was like 10 or $11 a month just to have the right to bid on various projects when I was talking about just starting out. Yep. And from that, I was able to get my first project, which I believe was $12,000. So I had a monthly um, subscription, but I bid probably on 500 projects and got that one. Wow. So it was a lot of work, Okay. but I, I figured it out quickly because when you have to, you do. Right. And then these projects, I mean, I'm sure they span over different time periods and that yeah. kind of thing. How did you know what you could actually, what you had the capacity to do? Time-wise. So books are very, well, it's, it's laborious, the actual writing process. Mm -hmm. And so what I learned really quickly was, you know, as with any company, when you're starting a company, you don't want to turn away any projects because you don't know when the next one is going right. to come around. But then you find out that you're being drowned by these projects and you can't really keep up, which can hurt your reputation. So it's, it's sort of a touch-and-go thing. I found out I could write basically two and a half books a year. That is, you know, sort of six months, six months, but in the ninth month, start the third book and get half of it done. So it was like two and a half kids with that family, the statistics of right. each family. So I found out I could do two books a year comfortably and, and, and add a half by the end of the year. And... Um, that's without having another person helping. And then you hire other individuals. So I had some writers I wanted to hire uh, that I did not use because people hire you because of the voice you have uh, and your really the acute ability of narrative construction, how to build a story, how to voice someone's voice in a book that sounds like them. So it sounds like they, you know, picking up their demeanor, yep. what we call your oral demeanor, right. you know, what you say on a consistent basis that lets someone know this is you speaking. And um, so I found it very difficult to hire someone who charged less than I did to do it. So I ended up hiring someone and basically it was like, well, if I hire you, basically the company makes no money. So I ended up doing it all myself. And, you know, so it took a lot. And some projects I had to apologize for because they took a year and it was supposed to take six months. So okay. there was some... Some, some give and take because uh, you take on some more work than maybe you should. Okay, so just to take a step back, you mm -hmm. talked about working with the company on the subscription basis. Mm -hmm. Did you already have an idea of your target market? Like mm -hmm. you were going big, but did you have a clear sense on exactly who you wanted your clients to be mm -hmm. and what kind of writing you actually wanted to do? Mm -hmm. So yes and no. And so... I wanted to write nonfiction narrative. Uh, in other words, I wanted to tell stories. Mm -hmm. I wanted to tell stories in a way um, that e essentially would be inspirational, would be instructional, would be aspirational, um, but I did not know exactly whether that was going to be within the financial market, self-help books, whether this was going to be books on, you know, diet books on. And so what I found is essentially every topic, every genre, is based on great stories, whether it's cinematic, whether it's book, whether it, and so I concentrated on being the storyteller and less on the genre, less, less on let me write a book on finance. I mean, I've written books on wealth management. Uh, one of the books that I can mention because the author mentions me is You Should Only Have to Get Rich Once uh, by my client Russell Holcomb, How to Avoid Toxic Financial Advice and Focus on What Really Matters is the actual name of the book. And what I found was everyone needs someone to shape their static information into malleable stories, stories that are fungible, stories that are able to, like a virus, morph and apply themselves where the opening is for the reader. Yeah. So I pulled away from saying, I want to write for business authors. And I just promoted my company as, we can shape your story. You bring your information. Whatever it is. And we will shape right. your story because whether you're selling insurance, whether you're selling homes, whether you're selling a movie and a trailer, or whether you're selling financial advice, the story is what's going to make the difference. And so since I pulled back from seeking a particular client and I concentrated on the storytelling, 
all clients from all different avenues started coming because everyone said, we have a great product, we need a story. That was the same, that was the same uh, you know, retort from everyone. So we concentrate on being the storytellers. So um, we're going to transition to a segment we called Wish I Knew. Mm-hmm. And this really is about, you know, when you as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, you have time to reflect back on your career, what has happened over the last 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the things that you wish someone had told you, exposed you to as you, you know, embarked on this new journey or path? So when you think about it in the context in the context of finances, uh-huh. you know, some financial advice, mm-hmm. what is something that you wish somebody would have told you before you started your business? Wow. Mm. Probably a couple of things, just one. Or oh, you, <laughs> you, you, you can share as many as you like. Wow. <laughs> a couple. Well, I would say uh, one of them would be to, to place the highest value on your own opinion. That's the first thing. To, the second thing would be to go with your guts. Even when I did not have, when I was not financially literate, even back in the music industry, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was uh, when I was with Boys to Men, uh, there was this was my early twenties, and um, they were you know the top of the music industry at the time. I mean, it was just it was kind of a ridiculous time. Uh, money was uh, plentiful, like lint in the washroom. Right. Uh, it was everywhere, and so unf- un- unfortunately, unfortunately, I had not the information to properly manage, you know, large checks. Um, I remember one time, and I, I can tell it now because you know, I remember, and I kept the, uh, I kept the actual check. Uh, registers. Remember we had check registers. Yeah. <laughs> I used to write, you know, right. and oh. I remember. You know, before I got with him, I was I was just, you know, I was broker than a twig in a hurricane. Let's just put it like that. And so I, I my, my my checkbook said minus 80-something dollars. This is like in the early 90s. So I remember I had less than 80-something dollars. And my, I, was just, I couldn't get to zero. I was trying to get to zero. Right. And so I remember the next entry after this, doing something in the music industry was like a $250,000 check. And I went from minus something right. to like two hundred and forty nine, nine hundred and something. <laughs> right. and, and, you know, it's a change. It's a change. Right. And I didn't know what to do with that kind of money. I had no. And so my first instinct, not being financially financially literate, was to I said, why don't we just take a chunk and pay the taxes? Mm-hmm. Let's just do that. And that was my gut instinct from the aspect of ignorance. And I remember I had business managers at the time, which is a whole other thing, who said, no, 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 we don't want to do that. We might pay too much. We want to do estimated taxes. Let's just put it all here. And, you know, of course, they were receiving percentages off the, you know, because in the music industry, to be a real producer, you have to have all these team and right. business managers, and all they do is just suck you dry. So uh, we did not pay it. And years from that point, it came back to just mm. haunt me terribly. Mm. My first instinct from ignorance was pay the taxes and give us the balance. Right. And we were com- we were convinced not to do that and to take their path, which ended up costing us dearly. So my advice would be number one, go with your gut. You know, that's that's number one because you know the gut has never been wrong. I tell my clients all the time, you will live your whole life and never once say your gut was wrong, you'll only say you should have followed it. So um, we didn't do that, that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, opinions, shopping for opinions, you ended up, you know, we ended up making terrible, you know, some other financial decisions that weren't good. And then really seeking the advice, again, of course, of someone who really is seasoned and is making no money from the advice they're giving you. Right. So that's probably what we should have done. Not someone we hired, but to go and speak to an older woman or man who was not hurting for money right. and was not Im- impressed with a small $250,000 check right. that didn't mean anything to them. and Obje- could, Completely objective. Yeah, and just say, look, this is what you need to do. And uh, if I had to do it over, I would have done those three things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could have avoided a tax bill. And so when you think about it, you know, at the beginning of your career, what is a financial decision that you made that you know, you're like, you know what? I did good. I did good. <laughs> okay. Good move. Little pat, you know, little pat on your back. What was that? Little pat on the back. Well, I think it was investing in, in shooting, uh, and hiring a, a producer, and a videographer, 
and shooting YouTube videos, instructional videos. We shot, it's probably has been the largest return on investment that I've had in the past seven or eight years. So talk a little bit more about that, the instructional videos. And so many years ago, I, I of course, you know, as a writer, you actually do a lot of reading. So I was reading uh, some Harvard research on where the consumer industry was going as it relates to how people will decide to spend their discretionary money. Mm -hmm. Will it be word of mouth or whatever? And so in this particular publication, uh, it was stated that they will, consumers, will most likely receive all of their business, their credibility for who they should hire from YouTube in the coming years. And so I took that advice and I hired a videographer, first did some rough videos and I hired a videographer and essentially started doing videos. We did about 80 or 90 of them, just no, short, two minute videos. We started doing videos, I want to say, in 2009 or 10. Yeah, you guys were so, ahead of the curve. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> it was based on the information yeah. I was reading. I said, yeah. well, let's see if it works. It was free to put them up on YouTube. Right. Yep. And, you know, and so I started doing that and put about 80 or 90 over the years. And then some of them got better. You had more money to invest and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And um, it probably became the highest ROI for us uh, than anything we've ever done, just giving your best advice for free mm -hmm. with no strings attached right. to establish yourself within the marketplace as being an expert in the field yep. such that when those call you from watching you they have been ingrained in who you are because in this discretionary time you have been feeding them and so by the time they call you they actually call you as a fan and fans like to speak to the person they admire uh, fans don't uh, complain about how much you charge because they're thankful you answered the phone right. So through the videos, you're actually able to create a separation between your expertise, your profile, and by the time someone calls you, you pretty much can set your price and not have any, and like, like a friend of mine told me, when you pick up the phone to call uh, versus someone calling you, you know, the price changes and whoever picks up the phone is, <laughs> is going to determine what the price is. And those YouTube videos have gotten us customers in Greece and uh, you know, every every continent. You, I mean, in Africa, and I mean, from LA to everywhere you can imagine. Canada, we have clients in Ottawa and in uh, Toronto, all of them, and it all comes from these videos that we decided to do, where people watch them for three and six months and then call and say, "Whatever you charge, we'll pay." And so, basically, you put yourself in the market as a subject matter expert, and that you're is able correct. to monetize that. That is correct. Yeah, and I don't know if we totally knew the ramifications of what all that was going to, you know, what was going to happen from that. But yeah, I, as I was writing books, I was just giving insight on what I was saying and how to start a chapter, you know, the, the psychology of the reader. Mm -hmm. And so many of the authors who were writing were pulling from these videos as they were writing their books. Sometimes they would call to hire me as the writer. More often, they were in the book writing process and they did not understand sequencing sequencing of ideas. Uh, they didn't understand uh, the first two sentences of a paragraph and how to buy time for your readers so you can... They didn't understand that writing is essentially farming and you're planting seeds to water at a later date. And so as you're looking at your writing, you're not just writing ideas, you're planting a seed here that you will imply something here, infer something here, and as it goes along, you know, the force will grow throughout the book. And so they didn't understand the approach. They didn't understand in the videos I, I made about the antagonistic nature of the reader. They didn't understand that anybody who's a new author has to fight against antagonism because you come as a new author and I say, well, I just finished reading Adam Gopnik and Malcolm Gladwell and I just read Salinger again last night. You have a book too? Okay, you know. So I'm already <laughs> comparing you to other people. Right, right. And so you can leverage that in your favor if you understand how the, the reader's mind thinks because the same road that took them to be antagonistic towards you has a road going back the other way, word of mouth, saying you have to hear this, read this woman's book. And so all these approaches, psychologically, intellectually, emotionally, uh, I explained in all these videos and people found them to be uh, unbelievably useful for free and it just created a momentum of, of, uh, of calls from individuals who said, you helped me finish my book and just want you to know that. And I'm going to hire you to do my next one. That's awesome. It, it definitely builds trust mm -hmm. and make 
makes you relatable and personable and then mm-hmm. um yeah then you can charge what you want yeah. Yeah. So, so convert people to fans that you have never even met yet right right yeah. it, it's true i mean it's kind of a it's really a music industry approach absolutely I mean, uh yeah. from, from a, a business approach so it's um the the dynamics are pretty much the same so we're going to move on to our next section mm-hmm. and just talk about some advice you would give to someone who's looking into becoming a ghostwriter so, or or if one of us, yes. you know, we're mm-hmm. saying, you know, we think we have skills here. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we right. think we can do this. You've inspired us today. Right. So um, what are the top three skills, you know, traits rather, hmm. that you would say that a young or a new writer would need to have who really wants to do this full time, feed themselves doing this, not right. a hobby. And feed themselves well. Feed, feed yourself well. Right. Is there any other way to feed yourself? <laughs> Any other way. way. (laughs) The first skill would be the economy of expression. Master it. Master the economy of expression, which means you're able to say more in less time. If you're able to say more in less time, your reader will give you more time to say more. Being able to take an idea that takes other people a lot of time to express and say it quickly. That would be the, I cannot tell you how valuable that is, to be able to abstract everything, as I tell clients, to have a direct TV preview mindset. That is, those two sentences that will either get you to stay on that station or, or move away. away. Yeah. And so, you know, you learn from, obviously they're all peripheral things because to me everything's connected creatively, songs and books and everything. I remember Quincy saying, Quincy Jones saying years ago that if you don't, if you can't play your song with one finger, you don't have a song. That if you need a compliment, if you need all the other voicings to make it happen, you don't have a song. You would find a song that can stand with one thinking. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> so, right. so, so from that perspective, that applies to, to writing also, the economy of expression. Uh, number two would be really observation. Observation. So a large part of writing is being able to write dialogue, dialogue that stands up against reality. And dialogue is very different when you're writing to think about what a person would say versus standing in the grocery line and hit line and hearing people speak and understanding that he doesn't say, hey, Bob, what's up? He doesn't say, hey, he says, Bob, what's up? So when you're writing, you actually add a lot that shouldn't be added because you're trying to enter into reality. A ghostwriter takes reality and enters it into the page. So economy of expression, observation, um, such that you're writing dialogue uh, properly. Um, understanding, and there's so, there's so many different ones uh, I'm going to, but uh, a third one would be editing, to understand, now for example, let, let me give you, give you an example. This seems like a very simple um, sort of example, but it's very true. So if I said to you, if someone said the sentence on paper, uh, Suzanne, Suzanne said that I should eat. Simple sentence. Suzanne said that I should eat. That seems like there's really nothing else you can do to that. Right. I mean, what else are you going to say? Sue said it? You know, right. <laughs> um, but in reality, a ghostwriter who is really a premium ghostwriter would say, Suzanne said I should eat. So understanding how to eliminate articles from your sentences gives an indication to professionals that you're thinking properly. Because you have to think properly before you write properly. So I just took out the word that. doesn't seem like a big deal. But in reality, if you wrote a whole page and took out all of the that's off your page, mm-hmm. your writing would increase by about 35% in its effectiveness. Its, its angling would be tighter. So simple things like filtering words, taking out articles, speaking without them, observing the nuances that people don't really observe. I, I tell people all the time that most people would sit down and, you know, in a den or something in the summertime and watch, you know, a ray of light coming through the, the window and as it hits the ground. But ghostwriters find that piece of lint and watch it all the way till it hits the ground. <laughs> right. Because that's what we want to write about. Right. We don't you want to write about the light, we want to write about the life of the lint. And so it is observing things all around you which is really going to give the the individual who's willing to pay you hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars to write a book. Little things are going to give them the indication you are an observer, you are a master communicator, and that you can speak with the economy of expression, 
you understand lift, you understand sequencing, you understand what to put, where to put it. You understand that readers are more intelligent reading than they are in real life. Mm -hmm. You understand that people are more intelligent watching a movie than they are in real life. And so you write to the higher intelligence because they will be in the creative mode as they're reading your book. A person can go watch The Matrix who has a third grade education and understand The Matrix. But when they walk out the door and you say, tell me about The Matrix, they will say, man, this, you just have to see it. Mm -hmm. They get it there. They don't get it away from there. So a writer understands all these things. And 99.9% of people in the world who believe they can be ghostwriters, you know, they don't understand that. And so that 1% who does are the individuals who are going to become great ghostwriters. So that would be my advice, those, those three or four things I mentioned. Sounds like an elite group to me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like they have some work to do. Right, right. <laughs> Sounds like they have some work to do. Good luck, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so discouraging. No, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about all the pieces of the puzzle um, when it comes to writing. So you might hire someone to be a copy editor versus mm -hmm. just a grammatical editor. Mm -hmm. um, but how do you know, like, you have the gift to be it all, to do it all, and to present it? Do you still have an editor that oh, edits yes. your ideas and absolutely because i know th i'm sure you still do some self-editing to cut away some of the yeah that that self-editing is more like pre-mixing in the studio i mean you get it to a certain level but then it's got to be mastered you have to turn over to mick gazowski that's a whole nother skill that, yeah. you know so yes i'll do some self-editing while writing but i am not an editor i am a writer okay I have, so a, just, I have a, an editor, yep. and that is so important for a surgeon not to operate on himself. Okay. It's very important because those are just not successful surgeries. So you cannot see, because you put so much into the writing itself, you cannot see where you've gone off emotionally. You cannot see where right. you're too entangled. And so I have someone I, I use, Lisa McDonald and, and many others I use across the country, who will take the actual manuscript. They've never seen the subject, never... And just take it apart. Yep. Boom, just, you know, boom, 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 boom. You know, content editing, uh, line editing, technical editing, and then give it back to me and allow me to now pour back into it from a, a, a perspective that is a bit more technically correct. So, yeah, I always advise never to edit your own your own work because you cannot get it right. It's, and writing is too important to spend that much time on getting it wrong. So for someone who's um, in a career right now where they are doing some writing, maybe they are within a company, maybe they have been doing, like you said, they've registered with one of those sites right, right. and they are bidding on different projects. How do people know, you know, that they are capable and qualified to be a writer? How do people know that they really have the skill set? Yeah. Well, so here's the thing about writing and writing effectively. Uh, there is really no static benchmark test that can say you are or you can be a great writer because a lot of great writers started off horribly. Um, and so I wish I could tell you if you do this, you'll know you're going to be a great writer. Mm -hmm. But the reality is the purpose of writing is to effectively communicate. And an individual who has very little education can sell millions of, millions of uh, books. And a person who has... And records. A record. A person, yeah. Amen. Yeah, a lot of time with the records. Yeah, in fact, the less education you have, you might have a better chance of records. Right. Um, sadly. Right, sadly. Uh, but the reality is, from a writing perspective, you have to expose yourself, first of all, to great writing. You have to. You have to get True Believer by Eric Hoffer. You can't become a ghostwriter if you don't know True Believer, the, the Nature of Mass Movements by Eric Hoffer. In fact, let's just mark off one of the three I gave you earlier. This is one of the three <laughs> if, you want to be, if you want to do that. Get the book True Believer by Eric Hoffer. Uh, I'm thankful to have won the Eric Hoffer Award, Writing Award. I'm very happy about that. But Eric Hoffer wrote a book that will train you how not to write, will train you how to write in the fact that he has written a book that has become a classic, a philosophical, political, uh, really social commentary classic. I mean, all philosophers have to master this book. Interestingly enough, Eric Hoffer has no education. <laughs> See, so this is the tricky part. His writing is so succinct. It is what we call emotionally articulate. It is emotionally articulate. It is the angle of his writing is so 
a depth that you would think, well, he maybe, maybe went to Harvard, he maybe went to Oxford, whatever. He was a longshoreman in California mm -hmm. who wrote in between his breaks, who wrote a pivotal work, the likes of which, the equal of which, in its clarity, in its writing skill, you will be very, very hard to find anywhere. So, as I said, it's very difficult to see what are the pieces that are going to make you a great writer. The best advice is going to be expose yourself to great writing. Understand the aspect of showing, not telling. How to write, not just words, but to write imagery. Mm -hmm. Understand silence and respect it. Understand that the best words written are not on the page. Understanding that the story best told is the story that my story reminds you of, not the one I told you. These are just psychological constructs that makes you a good writer because if you think correctly before you write, your writing is going to, is going to, uh, is going to be more effective. Uh, understand this also. There are, I don't want to, to turn this to be dark, but <laughs> great writers are generally depressed. I know. It's rough. I know. I know. Great writing is usually a facet. I don't know. It, happiness does not create great writing. I, I know. It's terrible. It's, you, you're saying pain kind of pulls it out of people sometimes. I didn't make it. It's just, yeah. the way, right. it's just the way it is. I've never seen birthday parties produce anything but cake and ice cream. What happens is a person who is a great writer either ha is in, has come out, has... And so I tell people who are going through things, they could be depressed about their career. The mistake they make is they wait till the depression is over and then try to write about it. Right. You have just destroyed the pain. You have to create in the pain. Mm -hmm. Your best writing is going to come from when you are in the most desperate of circumstances because what you will say in those times will be the most succinct phraseology that you would ever use because... The mind, the writing mind, pulls in on itself like your extremities it. do when it's cold. Right. They say, forget the hands, forget the feet. We have to protect the core if we're going to survive. And when your mind is depressed, it forgets everything that doesn't matter. And you start writing core phrases that you could never write when you got happy. Yeah. And when you come out of that, people will say, that is great. And you're like, do I have to get depressed again? Right. I mean, I can't repeat that. I want to go back there. But the reality is... Once you have gone through that, you know how to almost synthetically push, put yourself in a place almost of synthetic depression. I know it sounds rough. No. Of, of being able to access those skills again that only, only come from being in a bad place, although you're not necessarily in that same bad place. So, you know, I, I know I said a lot there, but those are some of the things that writers have to think about. How your, how your writing affects a person when they read it has a lot to do with telling you whether you have, not your mom and your brother who are going to write, if you wrote Joe, Dick, Sally, and they ran over this, oh, you're great. Right, right. No, I'm saying most of the times, if you're able to get strangers to react to your writing emotively, you might have something. To that end, person's in a career. They want to make a change. They want to go into writing and whatnot. First thing I would tell them to do is go to someone's website, go to someone's document they've already written and published, and rewrite it. Don't talk to them. Don't ask, don't ask any questions. This is not a question business. This is a sharing business. Go to your website. I see what you wrote. And I send you a document. Hello, Holly. This is your reps, web, website rewritten. I give you, forget the talking, I give you what is immediately better. Now the relationship is totally changed because you read it and you like it. You're saying, wow, my, my site, you're going to either hire me or ask how much can I, or something. So when you want to write, you have to just start writing. Don't ask about writing. Don't apply for writing. Write it. and turn it over to people who actually are in the business of showing collateral, written collateral to promote their business yeah. and say, this is how it can sound. And you're going to start getting a barometer because they're not going to pay if they don't like it, right. if it's any good. That's a great place to start. You can do that with just writing a few paragraphs from someone's website and say, try this. I, I think, like it. That's I the, think that's it's a great, great advice. Idea. And there's no barrier to entry with that. None. Exactly. It's None. just like get online, go to some websites, focus on, and then you can target who you, you really target. want to work with. Mm. Too. Right. That's it a can, great idea. It can sound like this. This is how your website can sound. And even if a person makes $100 off of doing that, you'll be surprised, you know, how that leads into the, the entire business. Am I talking too much? No, no. not at okay. all. We'll let the, you know when you want. Okay, okay. The, the, entire, the entire business world surrounds words. I mean, words are the currency of productivity. 
words are the currency of productivity. So understanding how to use them properly, understanding what to say to whom, as I say in the videos, not only having a perspective, but having a perspective on perspective, you know, not just seeing you looking at me, but imagine you looking at me from your eyes, gives you a framework that is so valuable. Very few people, that's why a very small group of, of ghostwriters control the entire publishing industry for the highest level of authors. This is not a lot of people. Few people are able to, to do this, um, and those who are able to do it, and many people who aren't do it can do it if they were exposed, but there's no curriculum, as I said, pathway or degree that says you're a master ghostwriter. Ghost right. It really, it, you almost mistake your way into this position, and um, so you have to meet someone who can sort of guide you down the path. So what would you say is, is one of the hardest parts of what you do for others mm -hmm. that maybe people don't necessarily think of or you may not be able to tell right away on the surface but now that you've been doing this for a while and working with different people mm -hmm. what would be the hardest part or the most challenging for you well really managing eccentric uh, very wealthy demanding clients people who control their worlds but they can't write so they come to you basically saying you know i have a I have 800 employees um, i have companies all over the world whatever and i want to write a book and they think they're going to write it, and, but they hire a ghostwriter. They know they, they really don't have the skill. So you have to manage individuals to shepherd them into what they don't know. You have to break it down to them very softly. So what I have found is it's difficult to work with clients who are so successful in everything in their life, and they have a hard time accepting, wow, I can't, I can't write, before they actually sit down and give up to you what you need so you can do for them what you need to do for them. Uh, because if a person does not come in emotionally naked into the writing interview and they're giving you the corporate thing, you can never write a great book for them. You have to, in order to access, like a physician, if, in order for him to access his physician skills, you have to get naked. You have to show him what you need him to do. What's wrong? What's wrong? Mm -hmm. And so, from a literary perspective, if a person is not emotionally naked, your skills as a writer, you can't even access. So the biggest barrier is getting them to let go and let God. It's <laughs> getting them to really, to, uh, to really open up to you in a way they've opened up to no one. And that sometimes involves a lot of battling at first, mm -hmm. and that turns into a lot of tears. But, and they start opening up to you saying things that I can't tell you how many clients have told me, Dennis, what I'm about to tell you, I've never told my husband. Or Dennis, what I'm about to tell you, I've never told my wife. And I'm thinking, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, and they tell you, well, I don't want this in the book. I just want, I just need to get this. I have to uncap this so I can get to the other part. Right. And they tell you things that happened 20 years ago. You never write it. Mm -hmm. But you find you are in a position of a, an unlicensed counselor. Mm -hmm. You're trying to get them to get to the place where you get to the, really, the nuts and bolts of who they are as a person, the things they've been hiding. And once you're able to get over that, you can talk about their business, everything else. And what happens is you never talk about what they told you, but it gives you the correct angling. People can feel there's something else there. Right. They can never put their finger on it, but it's because they gave you that something else so that people can feel it. I would assume your experience in the music industry probably has helped with these dynamic personalities, oh my too. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Because that's the business of dynamic personality, all those layers. Yeah, layers yeah. upon layers upon, yeah. Uh, yeah, the whole fame thing and right. the whole wealth, fame, uh, and immaturity is just a very, very interesting mix. So, yeah, it, it, ha it did help. The music industry days really helped to, um, to not be impressed, you know, and to be able to be a professional. You know, I remember when I first got into the music industry, I was in my early 20s, and you immediately go from, you know, being on just totally anonymous to working with people you've admired all your life and there's no time to be a fan you know you're there to be a professional and so you have to learn to to do what I call adjust up you know you can't there's no learning curve it's like no we're tomorrow we're going to the studio with Stevie like what I was just eating Raymond noodles last night like what <laughs> can I tell him how much no you're not there to sign all, you know you're there to work with it's like wow so you have to you know and you learn so that did help the whole music industry really helped a lot
Well, awesome. Well, we're going to transition to what we call, um, it's probably the funner side of our interview. Okay. Uh, it's just a couple of questions where we start off the question or mm-hmm. the sentence or the statement mm-hmm. and you finish it. So okay. there's no right or wrong answer. Okay. It's just what you think at the time and then we'll just go down the punch list like that. Okay. Okay. So the first one is... Money can't buy happiness, but it can buy... A comfortable bed to be sat in. <laughs> so, I'm assuming we're going to have a comfortable bed even if we're not sad. This, too, but not. you said it can't buy happiness. Okay, so, okay. Yeah, but you know, to that point, I'm not trying to change your question. Money can't buy happiness, but why can poverty buy sadness? Right. Like, I don't know if money can. I don't know. Maybe not permanent happiness, but I don't know. Okay, but that's my okay, answer. Okay. I'm like, yeah, I'm leave it alone. All right, so if I gave you $10,000 right now, what would you do with it? I would put it into the ministry called Mosaic, which is a Bible study I facilitate here in Atlanta for those in the entertainment industry and many other industries. I would put that money into growing Mosaic. We're going to talk about Mosaic at the end. Yes. Okay. have to. Good. If we gave you $100,000, what would you do with it? Hmm. $100,000, I would distribute that amongst the college accounts for my, for my two sons and sort of up the amounts in those accounts for their college education. That's what I, the larger amount going to my 16-year-old who will be in college in a couple of years. Yeah. My 8-year-old has a little more time, so <laughs> yeah, I would work out the college, the college money, yeah. All right, um, last money question. If I had a million dollars right now and I gave it to you, what would you do with it? Hmm. I would, number one, pay taxes. Because <laughs> <laughs> we Rival got that. Yeah. You, you learned learn that lesson. Yeah. Learn that lesson. Won't <laughs> let that happen again. Check. Oh, Lord, Jesus. Yeah. Pay taxes, number one. Uh, pay my tithe. <laughs> Just, okay. And uh, it would pretty much be the same the same deal. I, I don't think my methodology would change. It would just be taxes and and uh, savings for my my boys and uh, and money for ministry. It would be the same thing. Nice. Wouldn't buy any jewelry. No jewelry. No jewelry. Okay. No, more cars. no Teslas. Maybe I just get no my, Lambos. Nah. Maybe I just get my car washed more often. Right. My, my old. <laughs> I would get some more car washes. I, I'll say that. I'll spare on thirty five dollars. Okay, so if you had to do a do-over, mm-hmm. your career, your business, whatever, what would you do differently? It's hmm. a very good question. Same career, different career. Like, who would you be? Who would Dennis be now? Yeah, Dennis would still be Dennis. Uh, I would not uh, change who I am or what I'm doing. I would still be a writer. Uh, I would change what others were able to do to me. So I would, uh, I would become, I would sequester myself away from opinions, and I would waste little time on shopping for what other people think. That would have given me a more efficient pathway towards success. So I would do the same thing: still mm-hmm. write, still be involved in ministry, always, all my life. Uh, still you know, be a composer, still be a producer. I would do all of that. Mm-hmm. The only thing I would not do is waste any time on asking anyone what they think. And that alone would have changed everything. You know, I, I went to see, um, I went back in 2009, one of my clients with whom I, I'd written the book I spoke earlier took me to uh, Omaha, Nebraska. I was able to go to a meeting. Uh, Warren Buffett was there. And I learned a lot from that meeting. It was really life-changing. Um, one of the things I came away with was, concerning my last, the last point, was no matter how bad an idea is, or how good an idea is, if you leave it in its raw, crude form, it can be wildly successful. It's not about great ideas, it's about authentic ideas. That's why an individual can have an idea at a bar to sell a rock and sell $15 million worth of pet rocks. So, one of the things I learned while I was out there was, it is only when you enter and infuse someone's opinion about the idea, and you take this, and I take what you said, and now it's over here. I take what you said, now it's over here. That I've gone to a place where actually no humans are. Because here, statistically, no matter how bad my idea is, if I want to, to sell uh, roach dung, if, I, if that was my idea, there are enough people on earth who would actually buy it because someone has actually done that. 
it's only when I start to make it strawberry roast dung and you want blueberry. Right. Well, it's only when I actually change it that I've moved to where no one is statistically. That rep over here doesn't represent anybody. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting that if you eliminate asking people for their opinion about your idea, it can be the worst idea in the world and you can still be successful. So I would, at a very young age, not entertain anyone's idea but God's, and that's the change I, I would have made. Wow. And that really goes against a lot of what we talk about culturally, right? Like getting people's feedback, you know, you want to test something, get do surveys. Those who are those who are most successful, and many of whom, whether either either I've been exposed to them or, or written for them, or people like Stuart Cathy, who I was able to to know through a, another um, professional here in Atlanta I worked with, or listening to Warren Buffett, uh, Warren Buffett, or whoever, titans of industries. They have the, the antithetical position to the positions you hold all your life. Shopping for ideas and getting... Now, I'm not talking about beta testing. You have a technology piece and you need different... I'm not talking about that. Right. I'm talking about the core idea and how we morph it and transform it into something that is useless, mm -hmm. whereas the original form was the, the greatest form. And you see this in the music industry. Now, read Bruce Sodine, how many times he mixed Thriller. They mixed it 99 times, 102 times because Michael wasn't wasn't satisfied with the mix, but the one you on the radio was mixed too. What they did at the beginning was the what they felt at the beginning was right, That's but right. you keep questioning, go back to right. Sony, go back to Walter, go right. back is this right? Everyone's chiming in. Everyone's chiming in. Yep. And in reality you get it right at the front end. Always. Mm. I can't tell you, being a student of voice men and other people, you listen on the radio now to these records that sold millions of, those are the demo vocals. Right. Those are the vocals that they went to the vocal and said, cut the mic on, let me just try. <clears throat> you know, right. and just sing real quick. Right. At, recorded for 10 more hours, okay. went back to the original vocal and said, that's the, that's the real one. So when you translate that into business, uh, it is very important to, number one, have confidence in what you think should be right. Mm -hmm. Have the confidence not to ask anyone's opinion. We do it at Mosaic. We do an opinion fast. We don't fast from food. We pass fast from opinions for 30 days. We don't ask anyone anything. I won't ask you what the weather's like. I won't ask you anything. Mm -hmm. To get used to me being confident in what I think and moving on it and letting the chips fall. And that alone is a business principle that most people will not talk about because people make cake and they want to take it to the community and say, what do you think? What do you think? It doesn't matter what they think. Move forward with the cake. Sell it the way it is. Okay. I love it. Now, this was supposed to be rapid fire, but we... I know. We... Right. I, know. My, I knew it was going to happen. They tell me I'd be talking. Okay. Right. Mm. So I'm interested to hear what your response is to this. So who is your money role model? Hmm. Money role model. Not career, not writing. It's all about that money. Who's your money role model? Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, I never thought about that as a model standpoint. Probably individuals that um, are not famous. You know, these are not. You know, of course, Buffett and everyone else who's done well. But it's not really always that grandiose. Um, I work with an individual, Russell Holcomb. Uh, we work together. Uh, he's actually the president of Holcomb Financial here in Atlanta. He's a wealth management firm, and he's uh, taught me a lot about money. You know, a lot of it was very offensive at first because you know we're very frank with each other. You know, I wrote his book, and we worked together, and I, and so um, he has be he's become um, somewhat of a, a financial mentor in as much as we're the same age. Uh, he's wildly successful. Uh, he's very frugal, uh, not cheap, but very frugal. Right. And um, understands money from a perspective I was not, I did not have access to that particular experience. And so uh, I've learned a lot from him. You can handle a lot of money, make a lot of money, and have no idea about money at all. And um, so I think he's probably one of the individuals, if you take off Buffett and the rest of the guys who everyone want, you know, would love to have some of their wisdom, I think locally probably Rusty, Rusty is an individual that I um, would say has, has taught me a, a whole lot about about money and the nature of it, the spirit of it, which is a whole different thing. Nice. I like that. So, Holly, you ask him the last one. Okay, so I the last question is, what is something everyone should own no matter the cost? Hmm. Life insurance. Hmm. Yeah. I really believe that, uh, I believe it's very, very, it's critical that uh, your life it does not end up to be a liability. And um, so I think the good thing about it is it's not that much money, 
but it goes so far. And so I think so many, especially within our culture, within the black community, um, I wish there was a, a higher concentration on, you know, not leaving our families as desperate as they were, possibly, because they're all not desperate, mm -hmm. despite the rumors that we get shot walking down the street. <laughs> they're not all desperate. <laughs> and um, I think that um, no matter the cost, that is something that you cannot, you cannot live, leave your children without. You have to have that. Cars and houses and all this stuff is fine, but for the, someone to have to start a GoFundMe campaign to take to care of you, you is not, uh, mm -hmm. it does a, uh, doesn't do dignity to who we are. Right. And, and having life insurance and not even having millions of dollars in life insurance, just having something can change a family forever. Can yes. change a family forever. Absolutely. Not having to have chicken fries and raise money and not to, you know, being able to, your, your children, you know, one thing about it is, you know, grief is just a terrible thing and we understand, we've all been through it, uh, but when you add to that the lack of funds where you have to now truncate your grief because you have to eat. Yeah. Right. And now, you know, you have to, after the service on Sunday, you have to be back in church on, on, or back to work right. on Monday right. because there was nothing left for you to take a break and try to, you know, that's just inconceivable. To gather yeah. yourself. To yeah. gather yourself. Yeah. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's, you know, that's not a quote material thing. That might not be sexy, but right. I think that's a... That's a core. You can't be without that. Yeah. We appreciate you saying that. And we appreciate your time today. Yes. Dennis, I've learned a lot. So have I. So before we actually leave and say goodbye to everybody, what, what's the best place where people can find you? So you can find me. The best place is to reach me by email. I'm, I'm not a big social media person. But on IG, I'm Dennis Ross III, D-E-N-N-I-S-R-O-S-S-I-I-I. Uh, on Twitter, which I just started a little while ago, uh, at Speeches Matter, as I comment on speeches and public, public communications, pu political communications, at S-P-E-E-C-H-E-S-M-A-T-T-E-R. Facebook, Dennis Ross, just Dennis Ross, the guy with the beard. A lot of Dennis Rosses, but I'm the one with the beard. <laughs> pick, pick the right one. And pick the right one, because yes. anything he says, I don't co-sign. Right. It's not me. Um, and uh, what else is there? Twitter, Instagram. Facebook, 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 your website. Website. So, in fact, our website is really in a total overhaul. We're launching a new one on in, in January. So now if you go to the website, it's going to take you to our videos, which is fine, which is rightinvestment.com. W-R-I-T-E-I-N-V-E-S-T-M-E-N-T.com. Rightinvestment.com. And you will be able to see some of the videos on YouTube as we're getting a new site written. And then design. last, we can't leave without talking about Mosaic. Mosaic, thank you. Yeah, no, we, we, we just got to talk about well, that's mosaic. That's why I really came. I right. The writing's good, but right. I mean, that's what I came from. So let's talk about your ministry. Yes, let's. And so Mosaic is a Bible study I facilitate here in Atlanta every Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. at The Gathering Spot here in Atlanta. You can look the address online, 384 North Yards. And uh, it is a, a unique, innovative Bible study. We have a lot of people from the industry that come through, and whether they be singers or actors, we have everyone from physicians, engineers, attorneys, students, just a uh, cornucopia of, of individuals who come. And the, what makes us so unique is we don't study the Word through the, from the perspective of dogma or doctrine, uh, but the sobering angle of real life. So we discuss real-life issues using the Bible as a barometer of whether we're on the right path or not. It's been very effective for those who are disenfranchised, possibly, those who aren't, people who are wonderful in church, some people who go, never go back, whatever. Uh, we found it to be a very powerful environment, and we've gone from four people showing up six months ago to having almost 50 last week and growing out of the, the room we're in uh, to get into a, big, a bigger room. So we just finished a series on, we deal with issues with the relationships, too, and uh, what men really want from women, which was a very dynamic series, had a lot of uh, animated speaking. We'll call it, a lot of animated. It was the inanimate became animated during that conversation. What men really want, and it's not what you think. 
So uh, we dealt with, you know. You know what I think. <laughs> see, see, that's what we're talking about. That's what we got. Look, how about, how about this? One of the topics, one of the subtopics, let's start a new show. Oh, okay, look, one of the subtopics, it was women love love, men love like. Now, can you venture to think what that en encompassed? Yes. Women love love, but men love like. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that, okay, we'll leave that. Okay, so that was one of our sub. Yeah, we did we did that, and so we deal with a lot of issues this week, tomorrow. Well, when we're taping, obviously, but we're in a series now. Um, what are you supposed to be doing? Which is dealing with careers, dealing with, nice. um, you know, advising others never to get good at what you don't want to do, mm. because your competence will imprison you mm. where you don't want to be. So we deal with how to stop getting good and being the professional. In what's making you sad and to start moving yourself and extricate yourself into another area that actually is going to make you happy knowing that it's going to take as much pain and tears to do what you want as it does to do what you don't want so spend your time doing yeah, what, what you, you want, want to do. do make that investment yeah make that investment yeah. for the future I'll your future it. happiness so you don't have to lay in a nice bed and be sad so mosaic bible study every tuesday evening at 7 p.m nice. and uh, you can reach me on my email at d ross d-r-o-s-s at rightinvestment.com that's w-r-i-t-e-i-n-v-e-s-t.com and get all information about writing and about mosaic awesome well, we again, we appreciate your time and sharing with us this evening with the Never Broke Podcast. Yes, thank you. It's been you. amazing for you to be here. I love the moniker, okay. Never Broke. Not sometimes. Never. 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 Absolutely never. Never Broke. I like it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Woo!